my main hesitation for you know going through any medical change is because of birthing, conceiving, and, and giving birth. Hello, my name is Chigo. And my name is Kit. This is Health Class Untold Lessons, a podcast that combines personal stories and factual deep dives on the healthcare experiences of marginalized communities in the U.S. It's our hope that this project creates a community of listeners that learns from and heals one another while illuminating ways for our healthcare system to improve. Views expressed on this podcast are our own and do not take the place of medical advice. Today, we are going to be talking about gender-affirming birth. Our culture and medical systems often treat gestation and birth in binary gender terms, focusing on women and mothers. In this episode, we explain how gestational parents and birthers include more than just women. We will also discuss concerns a trans person may have when trying to conceive and giving birth, and ways we can support the trans community in birthing. As always, we'll start with some fast facts. What is trans? What is non-binary? Trans, or transgender, describes someone whose gender identity doesn't correspond with their birth sex. On the other hand, cisgender is a term used for people who do identify with their birth sex. Non-binary is a more specific term that defines an individual whose gender does not align as either man or woman. There are many terms used to identify gender, but another term that comes up in this episode is queer. Bell Hooks once defined queer as the self which is constantly at odds with everything else. What percentage of the population is trans or non-binary? As of 2016, 0.6% of U.S. adults identify as transgender, though the percentages varied by age group and state. Some research estimates place the global trans population much higher at around 2%. Data collection on trans individuals is still uncommon and inconsistent with studies conducted infrequently, and some counting non-binary and transgender individuals together, others counting them separately. How can people transition? Transitioning is the process of changing one's gender presentation to align with the internal sense of one's gender. Not all trans people transition the same, and there is not a standard roadmap to transitioning. Social transitioning may include things like changing your wardrobe, coming out to family and friends, and legal name changes. Medical transitioning, on the other hand, may include things like hormone therapy, or HRT, and gender-affirming surgery. What is the difference between gender and sex? Sex refers to a set of biological attributes in humans and animals, including chromosomes, gene expression, hormone levels, and reproductive anatomy. Gender refers to the socially constructed roles, behaviors, expressions, and identities of girls, women, boys, men, and gender-diverse people. Gender influences how we see each other, interact with one another, and can be expressed as a spectrum. What is the difference between gender and sexuality? Sexuality refers to one's sexual interest and attraction, as well as their capacity to have erotic feelings. Sexuality may depend on gender, but not always. Gender and sexuality are spectrums, and people can be any combination of gender identity and sexual identity. Can only women give birth? Anyone with a uterus can give birth. 
and not everyone with a uterus is a woman. Birthers can be men, non-binary individuals, and women. Today, we hear from Jess and Moss. Jess is a non-binary person who uses she, her pronouns and brings a patient perspective to our conversation as someone who is both trans and aspires to one day conceive and birth a child. Moss is a non-binary individual who uses they, them pronouns and brings a practitioner perspective to our discussion. Moss is a birth worker and childbirth educator living in Baltimore, Maryland, offering trans and queer-centered support services and education for other birth workers on how to provide support that's affirming and celebratory of trans and queer families. We dive into this discussion with stories about identity from Kit and our guests. Now, both of you are non-binary like myself. Um, I know what my story looks like. And I know in the beginning what it was like to sort of not fit the mold in terms of what we understood as, you know, trans journey, especially when even in the transgender community, we look at things in such a binary way. So I'm curious, like, what has what have your transitions looked like? You know, what does that mean to you? Moss, we'll start with you. Well, <laughs> for me, I... I think in a lot of my like self-understanding, like when words were introduced to me that felt right, then I clued into them and was like, oh, that answers some questions that I have had about myself and the meaning of myself for, for right. so I think for me when I learned that queer was a thing that you could be then I was like oh that's what I am and then when I learned that non-binary was a thing that I could be I was like oh that's what I am yeah so like finally kind of waiting for for sort of ideas and and words to to come along and I feel lucky because I think for just like by virtue of how old I am I think the words that described me sort of came into like more popular usage just at key times for me. So like in my Mm -hmm. late teens, early twenties, basically. So in all the ways, like more binary thinking always kind of kept me like, I don't really know what, how to describe this thing that I'm feeling. So I will just kind of like sit on it until something happens (laughs) more clear. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally understand that. I totally relate. What about you, Jess? So, you know, I, I always knew that, that I was, some type of transgender with like, like what Moss said, without the vocabulary to support it, you know, even as Mm -hmm. a kid, as a kid, you know, I, one of the things that I remember most is when I would see, um, you know, a cis man running or jogging outside without a shirt, I would say, mom, mom, like, I want to run outside without a shirt. And, Mm -hmm. And my mom would say like, no, you can't do that. And, you know, give all the reasons. And so that, that was confusing to me because, you know, when I was when that that age, when I was young, you know, I was I was expressing as a as a young boy, you know, I, I was wearing mm-hmm. I was wearing boy clothes. You know, people would would call me, um, you know, they they would they would think I was I was a I was a, a little boy, and I was okay with that, and I was happy with that, mm-hmm. um, and and I didn't question anything. And then you know, as my body started changing, my mom, you know, in in lovingly, you know, without without realizing what was actually happening, she said, okay, you know, it's time to buy clothes that fit you. And, and then that really like forced and confused everything. Um, Mm -hmm. And so like, I kind of did all these like flip flop back and forth. So, you know, I I went from male expression and then in like middle school and high school, 
when my mom, you know, said these these things, you know, I I was really hyper feminine, but like it was it was all a show, and then mm-hmm. and then I flipped back in college when I like learned all these when I learned the vocabulary, um, mm-hmm. you know, back to back to the masculine expression, um, and and then you know just like Moss, you know, I I, I learned the vocabulary, I learned non-binary first actually. And I thought, mm-hmm. oh, non-binary, like that's it. And then I learned queer, and I was like, oh my goodness, like this is everything. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I finally, I finally felt, I finally felt like there was, there was a you know a group of people that that understood what I went through my whole life. Right. Absolutely. No, the both of those stories really resonate with me. I, it's funny when you talk about terminology and how important that is. Um, you know. It's not really until you have an experience like that where you can really conceptualize what that means, to be honest. Um, So thank you for sharing your stories. So the title of this episode is Gender Affirming Birth, and you're both here because you either work with trans birthing or you are trans and would like to conceive. So Jess, how does your identity inform your family planning? You know, it's it's kind of hard because, you know, I oftentimes, you know, consider and then I, it's off the table and then I consider again, you know, going on hormones and then and then I think like, oh, no, like that that'll mess that'll mess up my my chances of conceiving. And then and then I think like that's ridiculous. You know, I, I just a lot of it's like misinformation, lack of information and also just like scared, like just being scared to take that leap. But, you know, I, I know. I know that I do want to to conceive and I and I want to, you know, give birth because it's such a beautiful thing to be able to do. But it's I'm still at, at the point where I'm I'm really trying to figure it out. Like my main hesitation for, you know, going through any medical change is because of birthing, conceiving and and giving birth. I'm not ready, you know, <laughs> I'm not ready for it, but it, but, you know, this is, this is my body, this is my life. And, and I want to be prepared when that time comes. Yeah. So Moss, like how much planning is considered when child rearing for a trans person? Like for me as a cis woman, I just need to find some semen and I'm good to go. <laughs> but as Jess mentioned, they're considering hormones and yeah. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is just that it's completely different for everybody because there's, a you know, as many ways to be trans as there are people who are trans. And so there's like not a not necessarily like a common experience, but there are some different sort of dynamics and concerns that come up. Like, you know, one of which is semen, like you're saying, like certain people's relationships have sperm involved in them and others don't. And so for some people, especially if like, you know, neither person is on hormones or none of the people are on hormones that are involved, then it, you know, the, the actual like nuts and bolts of the conception process doesn't actually look that different than it might for folks who are like cis and hetero. But then there's like, you know, lots of different things that might be happening. Like if somebody is on hormones, like say if somebody is on testosterone um, and they want to conceive, the general, you know, process that people go through is coming off of testosterone, being off for about for anywhere between like three months and forever, because it totally depends on each individual person's body, how long it takes for their cycles to come back. But basically, as anyone would who is uh, doing a more intentional fertility process, you want to like be tracking your cycles for like around three cycles to really like be able to time 
well when you want to do an insemination process. And by the way, I'm going to be teaching a whole class about this, like maybe once a month, but it's called how to get pregnant when sperm is not readily available. So if you're interested, <laughs> that is going to be a whole thing that's available to you. I love the title. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it's, that's you know, I feel like the thing about affirming and inclusive language is just about being as specific as possible at all times. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, so that's part of the puzzle for some people. And then also like the whole thing of procuring sperm is part of it for some people who don't have sperm in their immediate family or whatever. So that process takes a whole lot of time in and of itself because you have to like figure out what bank you want to work with. You got to like find a donor or you have to go through the process of figuring out, you know, within the people that you know who you'd be comfortable getting a donation from and then working out all of the like family uh, legal stuff that has to be worked out always imperfectly because there's actually like no tried and true method of protecting your family when you are using known donor sperm. Um, but there's lots of things and the timelines look totally different for everybody, I guess, is the, the TLDR answer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really curious about the legal aspects. I never really considered that. What like legal considerations do you have to take into account? Well, there's no, um, sort of like universally agreed upon documentation that is like the donor relinquishing parental rights. So you can like draw up contracts that are like, this person is a donor and they will not have any parental rights to the child. But those documents are not always held up in court. Um, mm. Even if you use a lawyer to help draw them up, they're like an imperfect contract, basically. And then there's also the element of like, if you are having children with a partner in a relationship where the, the co-partner is not going to be biologically related to the child, in most states, that partner has to legally adopt the child, even if they're like legally married to the person who's birthing the baby. Um, so there's lots of legal stuff that goes into to queer family arrangements uh, mm. and lots of things that are imperfect and therefore, you know, nerve wracking. <laughs> Absolutely. That's yeah. so much. <laughs> yeah. Like just, on the, just on the legal side. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, I can't imagine even like the healthcare side. You know, and one of the things that we talk a lot about on this podcast is like, how does the healthcare industry support whatever, you know, community we're talking about? And so as a doula, how do you see the healthcare community supporting trans parents? What are significant obstacles or distinct obstacles that trans parents see versus cisgender ones, aside from, you know, some of the ones we've already talked about? Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is just that there are very, very few trans affirming providers, especially in perinatal health world. There's, you know, more, more doulas than anybody else who are like getting on board and, mm -hmm. and learning how to provide gender affirming services or who are trans themselves and queer themselves who are getting into it just to support their, the people that they love, which is how I got here. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but then as you kind of like go out from there, it's like, you know, there are, there are a couple of midwives who are on board and who are dedicated to, to providing gender affirming services through pregnancy and birth. But then as you go further tears out, it's like the, I, I can't recommend any hospital systems in my area. Really? to there's just not like a culture of being trans affirming in in labor and delivery at all in, in the hospital mm -hmm. world i mean i think that this is maybe different like in certain like i know that i have i also run a, a trans and gestating support group 
And so I've talked to lots of families all over the place. And I think there are certain hospitals in maybe like the New York City area and certain places in California that have some amount of competency. (laughs) But it's like, there's not really a good recommendation for a hospital system, at least here in Baltimore, that I know I can send my clients to where they will be treated with with respect and affirmation for who they are. It's just not in existence yet. That's a shame. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately, like that's, you know, another thing that I'm not surprised of. So uh, I'm going to shift and ask you Jess a question and then Moss I'd love to hear your opinions about it too but uh, what would a what would gender inclusive care to you look like what has it looked like in the past and and more so what would it look like when when you want to become a parent well yeah like um in in my experience and and this is recent too like when when I first started you know going to you know, the OB and when I was, when I first became an adult and I was going to my annual checkups, it was very gendered, but in recent years, and, and I, and I use the um, UPenn hospital system in Philadelphia. Okay. Um, my, so my, it's, it's funny, my doctors, they would start off with their, with their old, you know, openings, but then they would retract and be like, Oh, it, it's okay. Like does, it doesn't matter. And, or they would say like, like we're open to, hearing about your background and, and we want to know more. And, and it was, it was very inquisitive and supporting, mm-hmm. but like you, but I guess you could tell, you could tell that it was new to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I appreciated the effort because, you know, it's, it's the, the change in, in language and practice. It, it, I don't think it can happen overnight, but, but I do think the effort at least is being made within the doctors and, and the, in the medical, the hospital system that, that I'm affiliated with. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, I'm just speaking to two different doctors, like speaking to my experience right. with two different doctors in a world where there's, where there's you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of other ones. So like my experience might not be the same as somebody else um, in, in my For city. Sure. But yeah, like I, I just really appreciated the effort that they were making. And, and I did feel supported at the end of, of every of every appointment. And what things would you want to see evolve for you to define it as more, you know, comprehensively gender inclusive? Yeah. If you if you could put some words to it. You know, I think I think the question, like the basic question, like, are you sexually active? And then after you say yes or after you say no, then the follow-up question is is it is it with a male or a female partner? I think that follow up question mm-hmm. is, un, is unnecessary because it, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day, um, and and I think that's what that's the step that that my doctors are trying to take because you know they they, they realize that and they realize that no matter what I still have medical concerns and they want to be the the uh, professional to to help me out. Yeah, that makes sense. And Moss, uh, I want to turn the question to you, you know, what comments would you give from a practitioner's perspective as well as your own perspective, you know? Yeah, I mean, as both a supporter and a person who goes through this also, I think jumping off of what Jess was saying, that the questions that are asked are like, who like, do you have sex with? male or female partners. And it's like, what you really want to ask is like, is there sperm involved in the sex that I'm having? And so Mm -hmm. to me, like gender affirming, any kind of affirming care is all about just like, first of all, just asking what you really want to be asking instead of using sort of like non-specific 
language because it doesn't work very well. So, so much right. of it is about coming in, not assuming anything about a person and just asking them to give you the impression of themselves that they have. So like asking people right. what their pronouns are for the first, first and foremost, like really simple, thing, which yeah. is like a huge shift for a lot of the medical world. <laughs> And beyond that, recording it and making sure that that information gets carried over from visit to visit, that information mm-hmm. continuity piece is like a huge, huge deal and is yeah. like maybe one of the hardest things to tackle in, especially in like the bigger medical industrial complex, like hospital systems, because so much there's the, the teams of people are very large and the software that they're working with is not always uh, like infrastructurally able to um have the capacity to share that information from visit to visit. But anyway, so continuity of information and just asking people questions. So asking people what they're like, what the name that they go by is rather than uh, using a name that is maybe like on their driver's license or what their legal designations are asking what language in general people like to use to talk about their bodies and their experiences. So much mommy talk as we call it goes on in in these like perinatal health spaces. And it's, I mean, I understand that it comes from a place of like, people are like, just brought into the culture of working in perinatal health. It's like, this is what we do. We just call the patients mommy or whatever. But I honestly think that most people don't necessarily want to be called mommy by their fellow adults in the world. So it's just like, actually asking people whether they're trans or not, what makes them feel comfortable and what words they they want you to use is like a really simple fix that works for everybody and just does create gender affirming care. Yeah. So is mommy talk just like calling everyone mom? I mean, that's kind of, that's a lot of it. Yeah. It's oh, wow. really like a nurse will walk through and be like, Hey mama, how's it going? Like, this is a very common script. It's just, you know, I'm sure like one out of 10 people is like, Ooh, I feel so validated by this. But like the rest of those people are probably not feeling very validated by this. But it happens just like for a lot of people, like every single time they go to the doctor during their pregnancy or during their uh, fertility treatments or whatever, like it just happens all the time. Mm -hmm. So what are some specific ways that trans birthing is different than cis birthing moss? I mean, in a lot of ways, it's not, you know, it's, it's all the same stuff. And the, really, the difference is just how people around us treat us when we're in, in those spaces. And, you know, obviously, like for, every, like I was saying, everybody is so different. So there's no like, one size fits all answer. You know, some people do experience dysphoria based on like how their bodies change throughout pregnancy. But I think that honestly, that narrative is like, it's less true for most people than you might think. I think that for a lot of us, the way that dysphoria creeps in is, is, is primarily based in how the outside world is perceiving us and treating us. And so I think like the ways that you get constantly misgendered throughout pregnancy is like, it's, it's a heavy load to bear as somebody who's also bearing the weight of just the general emotional experience of growing a baby and birthing a baby. That makes sense. So, Moss, to build on that question, what does what are the different ways that that family planning can look like for for trans families? Well, like I was saying, it depends a lot upon just what the, your circumstances are, like around who the people are in mm-hmm. your relationships, uh, who you're trying to co-parent with, and who you're trying to conceive with. 
you know, in some relationships, some people get pregnant accidentally. Some people right, right. have to like plan years in advance to like make sure that they have the time for like cycles to come back and for different hormone balances to rebalance and, and all of those things. But so mm-hmm. I think for a lot of people, it's about, um, I mean, like Jess was saying, like making hard decisions about when to do different transition things, like whether yeah. that's hormones or maybe like top surgery or things like that, that come into play when thinking about how you want to like feed babies once they're here. But so, yeah, I guess like different considerations are like how you're going to get sperm, how you're going to feed a baby. And then, you know, just like for everybody else, like who are all the people that are going to be around to support you through the process? But yeah, definitely like extra complexity comes into play when you are a person who is, who are maybe already has done transition stuff. So like maybe already has had top surgeries or who has already had, uh, has already done hormone replacement therapies. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one of the questions that I was thinking about uh, very distinctly when we were thinking about like research for this topic and and and, and doing uh, some question brainstorming was, at least from my perspective, like I'm an AFAB person or otherwise, you know, assigned female at birth. And I think when I think about trans parenting, trans conception, trans birthing, uh, I think about it centered from an AFAB perspective. And I've always been really curious, you know, why do we center, uh, you know, in parenting or transparenting, you know, the the AFAB perspective? Is it only because of the, is it because of the biology being there? Is there ways to modify that perspective? Or is there ways to be more inclusive with that? Or, you know, what is your experience and exposure to that? Yeah, I mean, I think that the conversation about transparenting general is so vast and varied. Like I don't Mm -hmm. have a total grip on like what the central themes are necessarily, but I think like when you're talking about birth, like for sure, we talk a lot about people with uteruses and, uh, and like those folks genders and, and stuff like that. But even within postpartum and kind of like new parenting stuff, like there is just as much misinformation to be dealt with and it's just as much trans stuff to deal with in postpartum for for folks who were assigned male at birth as well. Like right. the, the big thing that I think about is like inducing lactation stuff because mm-hmm. that's like one piece that I feel like not everybody knows is possible or a possibility for them. Like mm-hmm. um, not like not a lot of trans women and other um assigned male at birth trans people realize that they have the ability to induce lactation if they want to and to have that sort of that experience in in raising their babies and so there's like you know a million myths floating around that are like you know doubled down on by doctors all the time and that's that's one that affects that Mm -hmm. affects people who are not necessarily like assigned female uh, folks trying to give birth but also yeah, there's there's misinformation to go around for everybody, <laughs> which is absolutely. Can we clarify some of this misinformation or some of these? Yeah, myths? just a lot of people don't realize that anyone can induce lactation. Um, you don't have to have been assigned female at birth to induce lactation. So that means that you know trans women, non-binary people who are assigned uh, male at birth, and even cis men, if they wanted to, could attempt to induce lactation. And so, like like anyone inducing lactation. 
cis women and, and female sign people included, there's no way to know what the results will be. But I think that there's like a misconception that like only people who are assigned female have the tissues that you need in order to produce milk. But that is not true. Everybody has tissues already that that you need to produce and um, expel milk. And also being on hormone regimens will help your body develop those tissues even further. So, so like if you are like a female assigned person who's inducing lactation, one of the ways to do so is to like take a, a hormone regimen that basically like tells your body that it's pregnant and then you cut it off so that it tells your body that you've given birth basically. And so for folks who are male assigned to birth or intersex or whatever, you kind of just have to do that same thing. And then a lot of the same things happen. There is a, a thing of like uh, tissue capacity. And so it is like more likely that women who have been on hormones for longer will have like more tissue already available to produce and store milk. And so, or, you know, people who have been taking uh, quote feminizing and quote hormones in general might have more capacity to produce and store milk. But it's, you know, with, with so many things, there's like a no research ever been done to like really give us a lot of sort of like scientific information. And B, everybody's bodies are so different, no matter what kind of like chromosomes and what kind of hormones and what kind of genitalia people have. So there's infinite variation in, in results, as well as a lack of sort of like hard science information. But there's a ton of anecdotal information, which is very helpful. <laughs> And I just want to say that I learned this. This is my first time learning this, Moss. So, so thank you. I had no idea that anybody could induce lactation just by entering a, a hormone regimen. That's that's awesome. I had no idea. So, thank you. You're so welcome. <laughs> yeah, that misinformation is definitely super prevalent. I, I think you know, Jess, you had mentioned the understanding of the myth that you know, once you take hormones, you can't really conceive, which it's, you know, obviously it's very unfortunate that that's something that I thought up until like a couple of weeks ago as well, you know, before we really dove into this topic. So it's, that's interesting how it can um, really permeate so deeply. You know, one of the other things we were really interested in learning about was cost, right? You know, medical services in general are something that are incredibly inaccessible due to the cost. I think birthing from my very, very generic understanding is probably one of the more expensive ones as well, especially as a trans person, you know, even thinking about, you know, with partners, right? Like, how do we get the, the sperm, right? Like for free, you know, it's always been something that was on, been on the forefront of my mind when thinking about parenting uh, in my own life in the future, hopefully. So what kinds of feelings do you have about it, Jess, in terms of finances and Moss, how have you seen that affect parents? Again, would love to hear your entire perspective, but just I'd like to hear from you. Yeah, I I have seen friends and family go through you know years and years and years of of fertility treatments, and it piles up you know thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, and and you know of course I I put myself in this situation, and I think well, what would I do to be able to afford going through something similar if that were the case. And, you know, I, I think 
first of all, I think there should never be a price, a price on, you know, bringing life into, into the world. Um, so I have, you know, ethical issues on that line. Uh, sure. But, <laughs> but, you know, when it does come to cost, I honestly, I'm at the point where I think like, well, it'll have to be what it'll have to be. And that's, and mm-hmm. maybe I'm just settling and, and, you know, I, I, even though I don't want to, but if this is, if I, if I need to pay, then I will. And, and you know, just like every other parent or, you know, aspiring parent, they'll, they'll do what they have to do. Mm-hmm. I'm willing to, I'm willing to pay. Yeah. It's an investment. It's an upfront investment. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Makes sense. Yeah. I mean, to me, the thing that comes to mind first when thinking about the affordability of birthing and, and making families as trans people is just how much, basically, if you want to be in control of who is in the room with you when you are in these vulnerable positions of birthing, mm-hmm. you basically have to, for most of us, we have to pay out of pocket for home birth midwifery services or birth center services, which are, you know, in like very special cases, maybe birth centers might be in the position of accepting insurance. But for the most part, if you are especially planning to give birth at home, for most people, that expense will be out of pocket. The cost of home birth midwifery services being completely out of pocket is a big deal. And and then, you know, that's on top of if you are in a relationship that doesn't have sperm involved, then buying sperm is like I don't I don't know if everyone knows this, but a vial of sperm is basically a thousand dollars a pop, and and for most people we don't get pregnant on the first try. So for mm-hmm. for people who are just and this is just like you know doing no meds, just like maybe an ICI or an IUI, which are two different insemination methods. Which also, if you're getting the assistance of a midwife to help you out with those things or a doctor, then that's like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of more dollars on top of each thousand dollar vial of try. <laughs> right, so, right. Sorry, what's an ICI and an IUI? So ICI is intercervical insemination, which is like depositing the sperm up right next to the cervix. And then IUI is um, a medical procedure that bypasses the cervix to inject the, the sample right directly into the uterus. But anyway, so all those things cost hundreds of more dollars. So then that's per try. Most people, you know, it takes like what, I don't know, between like one and 10 tries. And then not for some people, even that number of tries does not result in a pregnancy. And for some people that that result does uh, result Mm -hmm. in a pregnancy, maybe that pregnancy does not come to full fruition. I think it's like around 10% of positive pregnancies end in pregnancy loss. So there's just so much that goes into getting pregnant and it's like for everybody that's true and then when you add having to buy sperm on top of that it does get more and more fraught and then when you get into like IVF world like each IVF cycle which is like you know its own attempt um first of all you have to like go through so much uh many different like drug methods and then each cycle ends up like on the low end costing like $20,000 and then it goes way even higher than that. So it's a lot. <laughs> and for a lot of people yeah. in order to qualify for IVF to be covered on their insurance, you have to basically have been like trying to conceive in other ways for like maybe a year before insurance will kick in to cover that stuff. So that's like, 
maybe 12 cycles of paying like over a thousand dollars a pop just to get you to the point where insurance will cover your like 20 grand a pop attempt at conception. So it's a lot of money for sure. (laughs) Yeah. And some of those, some of those obstacles are also faced by cis parents, right? Like, you know, that's not exclusive to trans parents. Are there Mm -hmm. any, you know, trans exclusive expenses that can can it be incurred or is it basically just the same i think that it's more about like the control over who's in the room stuff but you know for versus people you know everyone has like reasons why they might want to control the people who are in the room for sure like trauma-informed care is actually hard to come by etc but being like a, a trans or queer person birthing especially a trans person i think that making sure that the people around you are going to be like seeing you for who you are. It's a specifically important piece of the puzzle. And that piece is expensive, like I was saying. Yeah, that totally makes sense. So the thing that I still can't get out of my mind is that one shot of semen, basically. Mm -hmm. is $1,000 a pop. Yeah, that liquid gold. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like, I knew it was always going to be an expensive endeavor for me if I ever wanted kids, but that's like, wow. Yeah, it's very expensive. It sounds like conceiving while trans is similar to cis couples who have infertility problems, which can be very expensive. Yeah, Um, true. Yeah. Yeah. It is very apparent that uh, when it comes down to the, you know, pluses and minuses, it's really not that different. Mm Mm-hmm. Which I I think is unexpected. For some reason, it was unexpected for me too, despite, you know, being non-binary, despite being trans. But at the same time, I'm not surprised that most of the difference comes with like how we interact in the medical, you know? Yeah, that seems to be the meat of the differences. Right. You know, just like putting the hardware together can be very similar. Uh, whatever identity you have, but what becomes a challenge and trickier is moving through the medical field and feeling affirmed in the medical spaces with your care. I was really disappointed to learn that Moss couldn't recommend transparency to any healthcare facility in Baltimore. I was expecting more and I would like more from doctors. You know, I'd like more from cis practitioners like myself to not make assumptions and to, you know, get away from the mommy talk and really affirm people where they are. Oh, yes, I agree. So because of all these misconceptions in the medical community, it pushes trans birthers to use non-traditional care such as doulas and how that is a significant difference from cis women. Yes, trans birthers are, are more likely to use doulas and out-of-hospital care compared to cis women. In fact, 17% of trans parents deliver outside of hospitals, which is higher than cis women. Right, exactly. And also, like, even in the medical sphere, like, they don't know much about trans conception or conception within a trans mm-hmm. family. You know, some people think or some doctors may think that taking a hormone regimen makes someone sterile. And it was really great to have Moss, you know, disprove that myth. If you were on testosterone, you can still conceive. 
there might be like the like a little washout period. But if you have started testosterone, it doesn't mean that you can't ever conceive. Yeah. And for trans women, it's the same. So essentially, folks who produce semen, if they pause their hormone therapy, it's just as potent, if you will, as it was prior to them transitioning. Mm-hmm. The ability is not diminished. Right. So essentially, trans people, men, women, non-binary, and everything in between, have the same capabilities to reproduce, essentially, as cis people, especially when hormone regimens are paused in order to do so. Mm, Yes. So one of the things that I still struggle with in the conversation about trans birthing, that we don't really talk about the perspective of, of trans women in birthing. You know, a lot of even our conversation has revolved around trans men and non-binary individuals who are assigned female at birth. And that's something that I've always been curious about. And one of the things we found out in, in our research for this episode is that, you know, Uterine transplants are a thing, and they're something that has been completed successfully. The research from 2019 that we read told us that there have been 12 babies born from uterine transplants with cis women. So the medicine is quickly evolving, and it looks like there is a possibility for the conversation to change in the near future. Yeah, so it'll be very possible for trans women to give birth. We don't only have to think about cis women and trans men in birthing. Yeah, and also uterine transplants are an additional cost that must be considered for trans parents, which is probably why there's a limited amount and even just like a limited knowledge. True, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, thinking about like all the areas in medicine that we talk about that are under-researched, underfunded, and everything is based solely around that money situation and, like, who's the key demographic. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, none of us, <laughs> <laughs> you know? But, yeah, no, honestly learned a lot. I feel like I should be doing more research, but I'm also excited to see where a lot of this knowledge develops, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I think to myself, even three years ago, I, I wouldn't have known what a doula was, let alone been able to identify a queer and trans-friendly doula or that that was even possible. So I look forward to that being a fast development because it looks like it's, you know, the community's really building up around around issues like this. There's hope. Yeah, it sounds like the main takeaway is, you know, to be specific, see people as individuals, you know, and see them for who they are. Thank you to our producer, Annette. Our researcher, Abeywa. And our behind the scenes team, Maya and Hannah. Thanks also to our wonderful guests, Moss and Jess. Please follow, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at Health Class Untold for podcast updates and additional health class content. Is there a topic you'd like us to discuss? Feel free to send us your ideas through Instagram, our website, or by email. That's healthclassuntold.com or healthclassuntold at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. This has been Health Class, the Untold Lessons. Baby juice. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>